think it's a great pleasure and honor to inaugurate this series, and in fact, the, the redone and fabulous uh, Foster Commons room, uh, <laughs> with, a, with a talk by Professor Richard Eaton, uh, whom you all know and needs no introduction. Uh, Professor Eaton has, has written quite a few books that all concentrate on one of the following, one or more of the following themes, uh, the history of Islam in general, as a world religion, the history of the Deccan, uh, especially in the uh, second millennium, and the history of Islam in South India, or South Asia, sorry, that is to say, uh, Punjab, Deccan, and uh, Bengal. He's written some wonderful books, the Sufis of Bijapur, uh, the rise of uh, Islam in the Bengal frontier, uh, a whole a whole slew of wonderful, oh, and, and social history of the Deccan, I forgot, a whole series of wonderful essays from the, some of which are collected on, in essays on Islam and Indian history, uh, beginning with the wonderful essays on the uh, tomb of Baba Farid and going on to one recent essay called Kiss My Foot, Said the King, Firearms and Diplomacy in the Battle for Right Shore, 1520, um, it's a pleasure to welcome you to work to your uh, village, uh, ancestral village, which <laughs> it turns out right. that Hyde Park is your ancestral village. And uh, today's talk uh, just got shortened by about a century and a half. The original <laughs> title was Temples and Conquests in the Decade, 1296 to 1500. We will go only up to 1347, it turns out. Uh, so, with, with pleasure. Thank you, Egal. Thank you so much. Thank you for that very generous welcome. Uh, and I have to say it's a real a special honor to be the, the, the first of your series, and also I understand the first in this new high-tech room. Uh, as Egal said, this is something coming back to my ancestral village. Uh, turns out that my father was born and raised right at the corner of Blackstone and 52nd. Went to school here. And my older brother Phil, when he was a medical student here at the University of Chicago, lived in Foster Hall when it was a dormitory. <laughs> I think it was Mozaffar Saab's room, in fact, <laughs> that fireplace. But, uh, so I had these kind of fascinating connections with, with the university, and it's, a, it's, a, it's a really a great pleasure to be here. Uh, the talk I'm giving this afternoon is, is, a, is an abstract of a draft of a draft. Uh, so I'm not defending anything in print. I'm more than, I'm more than uh, happy to welcome comments, suggestions, suggestions of any sort. Um, the book that I'm, the project I'm working right now with, with Phil Wagner, uh, which is really in a larger sense about uh, architecture and power. And what I've decided this, this afternoon is to really address part of uh, one of the draft chapters of this project, which has to do with a a theme that I, ha I had worked on uh, some years ago uh, in an, an essay I published on, on uh, temple desecration in, in India uh, in the kind of longer picture, uh, but I've now realized that that has many shortcomings and was really only the beginning of, uh, of a project that, that I now realize I need to ex explore in more, uh, in more detail. So this talk is really kind of uh, an attempt to, uh, to address that. Uh, Surely one of the most contentious issues in, in the writing of India's pre-modern history 
centers on the whole question of Hindu temples uh, under the sway of Muslim conquerors or rulers. School textbooks, not to mention more popular forms of mass media, speak of scores, hundreds, if not thousands, of temples desecrated or destroyed by conquerors or rulers from about 1000 to 1757, India's so-called Muslim era. But the question, I now think, should not be whether ruling elites of the Delhi Sultanate and their successors engaged in temple destruction, which they certainly did. The problem is that that question is both too broad and too narrow. It's too broad in the sense that there was nothing distinctive about that activity. Ever since the 7th century, when royal temples were first perceived as objects of political contestation, states throughout India routinely engaged in desecrating the temples of their enemies. But the question is also too narrow in that it isolates only one response, physical destruction or desecration, out of a wide range of possible responses that conquering or ruling authorities might have had toward temples occupying uh, when they occupied a, a uh, which occupied a conquered landscape. A more responsible way of framing the question, in my view, would consider a wider range of possible responses and then to seek to explain why any particular response occurred in any given circumstance. I mean, this is, I see it as what historians are always trying to do. Why did this happen here but not there? Why did it happen now but not then? <coughs> so I propose to, I pose the following question. In any given zone of armed conflict, what do victors do with the built landscape of defeated regimes and why? In particular, how do they deal with architectural monuments most closely associated with such regimes? The reason scholars have not considered this question, I think, is that it falls in that huge vacuous space between art history and political history, two academic disciplines that have suffered too long from mutual isolation. As a result, the exploration of the intricate ways that architecture and power are mutually related is something of an orphan, neglected by both disciplines. So today I would like to uh, explore precisely how invaders or rulers in early 14th century Deccan dealt with the built landscape they had conquered or governed, especially with respect to Hindu temples, they, they being the most prominent features, built features uh, of landscapes. Obviously, the Deccan's terrain did not present an empty, pristine slate on which sultans or their agents could simply inscribe themselves de novo. Victors usually had to deal with cluttered built environments inherited from defeated rivals, as well as structures inherited from earlier occupants of the land. Confronting such a complex situation, new rulers actually faced a range of options. They might continue to patronize pre-existing structures in the manner their defeated rivals had done. They might rebuild them. They might redefine them. They might imitate them. They might destroy them. Or they might ignore them altogether. In fact, in the decades following Delhi's initial invasion of the Deccan in 1296, most Hindu temples were simply left alone. These include, among hundreds of others, the magnificent Chalukya temples scattered across the plateau. So the challenge is to account for the several temples that were not left alone and to explore the different ways in which the conquerors and later ruling administrators engaged with them. Uh, the first significant engagement 
of the Delhi Sultanate with a Deccan temple took place in the early 14th century. Alauddin Khilji famously raided the Deccan in 1296, attacking and plundering Devagiri, the capital of the Yadava dynasty of kings. During the 17 years following that raid, the Yadava king, Ramachandra, had to purchase Delhi's protection by paying an annual tribute. But after that king's death in 1311, his successors proved less compliant in paying that, the tribute, giving northern armies the excuse to reinvade the kingdom. The first such occasion was 1313, when Alauddin's slave general, Malik Kafur, invaded the kingdom then ruled by Ramachandra's recalcitrant son. After defeating and killing the king, Malik Kafur remained in Devagiri for two years. He returned to Delhi when the sultan fell ill and the capital was plunged into a succession crisis out of which, in 1316, emerged Sultan Qutbuddin Mubarak. In Devagiri, meanwhile, a son-in-law of the late King Ramachandra had revived the Yadava rule, which only gave Delhi another excuse to invade the Deccan in 1318. This time, the Sultan, determined to extinguish the Yadava house and annex its territory, personally led an army down to Devagiri, where he captured and killed the new king, placed a governor in the former capital, set up garrisons in the hinterland, and aligned the revenue system of the newly annexed territory with that of Delhi. As a result of these two invasions, sometime between 1313 and 1318, Devagiri's physical landscape underwent considerable renovation. Here we are sitting on top of, the, of that great hill in the middle of what is now Dolanabad, looking down into the fort. Delhi's most prominent architectural intervention, you can see it here, uh, was to construct in the center of the city a grand congregational mosque, one of the earliest Islamic monuments in the Deccan. This is at looking from the east uh, toward the prayer hall, another one with the hill, of course, uh, in the background. Among Indian mosques of its day, Devagiri's Khalji Mosque was second in size only to Delhi's Qutb Mosque. Consisting of a great enclosed square measuring 260 feet on side, uh, the structure contains 177 reused columns carved in distinctive Yadava style. Here you see them uh, here. These were evidently stripped from nearby temples, brought to the site, and then stacked end on end to give the prayer hall its great height. Malak Kafur and Sultan Qutbuddin Mubarak well understood the religious and political significance of the city they had conquered. By radically changing the context in which familiar Yadava material culture was displayed, the new mosque liquidated and absorbed most, if not all, the religious monuments that had theretofore defined the city. Their mode of engagement with the built environment was thus highly destructive. Yet it also followed conventional practice. For centuries, states in the Deccan, as in India generally, had desecrated royal temples of, the de of defeated regimes as a means of delegitimizing the latter's authority. This they did on the premise that a royal temple contained the image of a ruling dynasty's state deity who was considered responsible for protecting a king's sovereign territory. If the Yadavas had, had housed an, such an image in their capital city, dismantling the temple complex that held it would have conformed to conventional Indian practice respecting the annihilation of defeated enemies. But that would have constituted only one dimension of the Khilji's radical renovation program. 
The other was to build a monumental mosque that symbolically projected Imperial Delhi onto the Deccan landscape, publicly announcing Delhi's sovereign claims over this newly annexed territory. Features of Devagiri's great Khalji Mosque most precisely replicated the metropolitan style of mosques that had already been patronized by early uh, Delhi sultans in Ajmer, in Khatu, and of course in Delhi's Qutub complex itself. These features include a spacious central courtyard encircled by a pillared aisle on north, south, and east sides, a monumental projecting entrance, you see it here in the the bottom of the screen, uh, a corbel dome over the main mihrab uh, bay, and triviated beams borne by reused pillars stacked end on end. This was kind of the the classic uh, uh, style that was used there. In addition, Devagiri's mosque was, has engaged towers on its northwestern and, and southwestern corners that suggest miniaturized replicas of the most striking icon of contemporary Imperial Delhi, the Qutub Minar. So visually speaking, Delhi had, in a sense, projected itself into the Deccan. Now, just several years later, in 1320, the Khalji government's provincial administration sought to consolidate its grip deeper in the Deccan over its recently annexed Yarava territory by installing a governor in the important but distant provincial town of Bijapur. Located some 220 miles south of Devagiri, Bijapur, or Vijayapura as it was then known, had formerly been a major Chalukya urban center. Inheriting this territory after the fall of the Chalukyas, the Yadavas had continued to patronize and endow Chalukya period temples in the town. Between 1318 and 1320, when the region was annexed to the Delhi Sultanate, Khalji administrators constructed a number of new buildings using Yadava period materials. Now, foremost among these new buildings is the Karimuddin Mosque, built in 1320 and named after its patron, who was the city's first Khalji governor. Yadava period temples were evidently dismantled and their parts used for this mosque, as had earlier happened in Devagiri. But the case of Bijapur clearly departs from that of Devagiri in the manner in which the elements were used. Here, strategies of reuse serve to establish points of continuity between the mosque and the temple. Whereas the Dolatabad Mosque had resulted from a dialogue with imperial precedents in metropolitan Delhi, the Bijapur Mosque was the product of a productive engagement with local traditions of temple architecture. For example, an inscription on its facade in Old Marathi states that Karimuddin entrusted the mosque construction to Indian craftsmen under the supervision of a local builder named Ravaya. It was the involvement of local craftsmen and the formal choices that they made relating to this building's design that gave the mosque a much more familiar and local feel than had been the case in Dolatabad. The placement of the mosque's reused columns followed long-established principles of temple design in the region. It had been customary to distinguish between different spatial zones within a temple's pillared hall, or mandapa, by visually marking these zones with different types of columns. The most ornate pillars always define the central bay of a mandapa on axis with a sanctum, while simplified and more slender columns occupied the peripheral spaces. And Ravaya and his builders adopted the same design principle 
to their placement of the reused columns in the mosque's prayer hall, positioning the most ornate and monumental columns on either side of the central mihrab aisle, and the simpler columns with trimmer proportions in the spaces to either side. So the B, B, and the C, and C uh, uh, exactly match each other in this sense. Um, in effect, Karim Adin, Ravaya, and his masons were identifying points of commonality between mosque and temple, uh, Islam and Hinduism, and ultimately between the newly arrived Persian cultural order and the older established Indic cultural order. The search for commonality is even more apparent in the mosque's mihrab, ritually, of course, the most important feature of any mosque. Its upper portion bears two bands in which several verses from the Quran uh, are inscribed. The outer band contains the famous throne verse, which declares God's majesty, quoting here, his throne comprises the heavens and earth. Significantly, for a public monument on the cutting edge of an expanding Muslim state, the verse also prohibits religious coercion, the famous verse, there is no compulsion in religion suggesting the mosque's overall intent as offering a non-coercive invitation to non-Muslims. The mihrab's upper portion, consisting of newly carved stone of light red hue, was cut exactly to fit with its lower portion, which consists of recycled stone of gray hue, very clear demarcation between uh, the upper and lower. The latter had originally served as the jams of a doorway leading to the sanctum of a temple. Here we see the care with which the stonecutters sought to connect the diamonds of the lower half with the newly carved upper half, which I almost see as kind of a metaphor, strive for continuity. Placing the most important part of a Hindu temple in the analogous part of a mosque seems to have provided a, uh, a conceptual overlap in the sense of a translation of the new ritual space of the mihrab into the familiar terms of a temple. After all, both mihrab and temple sanctum are sacred spaces that open up beyond a pillared hall, and both features provide the ultimate ritual focus for their respective places of worship. Although the reuse of the temple door jams constitutes another form of translation, it stops short of proclaiming pure equivalence. A mihrab may be akin to a temple sanctum, but in the end it is fundamentally different, since unlike a sanctum, it is empty, and contains no physical image of God. This is why the mihrab frame is not an entire recycled sanctum doorway, but suddenly yields, as we see, halfway up, to carved, newly carved slabs of a different material and with a very different formal vocabulary. Although the inscribed Quranic verse begins by proclaiming that there is no compulsion in religion, it then goes on to hold up an invitation to abandon old ways, adding, quoting from the Quran, rectitude has become clear from error. So whosoever disbelieves in idols and believes in God has laid hold of the most firm handle. So in short, mihrab and sanctum do have points of continuity, but they're not the same. The particular form of reuse employed here communicates quite clearly that the mihrab has superseded the sanctum. No sooner had Karim Adin's mosque been built then a revolution takes place in Delhi, in the course of which a new dynasty of Turks, the Tughluqs, overthrew and replaced the Khalji regime. Upon assuming power, the founder of the new dynasty, Ghazadin Tughluq, 
put in motion an aggressive drive to annex larger tracts of Deccan territory. In particular, the eastern plateau where the Kakatiya king at Warrigal had withheld his annual tribute to Delhi during the turmoil surrounding North India's dynastic revolution. Accordingly, in 1321, Ghazadeen sent an army led by his eldest son and heir apparent, Uluk Khan, down to Warangal with a view to destroying the Kakatiya dynasty and annexing its territory. The prince's three-year campaign in the Deccan would be among the most momentous military expeditions, I believe, in Indian history. Directing and towering over these operations was the larger-than-life figure of Ulu Khan, later, of course, Muhammad bin Tughluq, uh, whom we first meet as a Tughluq prince, but then later on as Sultan. Inasmuch as he was involved in each of the next four architectural encounters with the Deccan that I wish to discuss, we're going to follow him on his great southern campaign, taking care to trace the different ways in which, along the way, he engaged with the Deccan's built environment. So, departing Delhi in 1321, with much fanfare, Ulu Khan unfurled the imperial standards and marched first south down to Devagiri, headquarters of Delhi's new Deccan province. There, imperial officers and garrisoned cavalry joined the northern army as it moved east into the domains of Prataparudra, the Kakatiya Raja. Gauging the size of Ulu Khan's advancing army, the Raja prudently drew his own forces within the two concentric walls of Warangal's fort and prepared for a siege. Ulu Khan's long six-month siege ultimately failed, owing to tensions between Khalji and Tughluq factions in his army. Uh, there still was that tension between the two houses. The revolution hadn't really taken full effect in the, in the Deccan by this time. So in early 1322, he was forced to lift the siege and withdraw to Devagiri. His forces reduced to just 3,000 mounted archers. But his father, the Sultan, sent down substantial reinforcements and ordered him to go back. So the Tughluq prince regrouped and prepared for another invasion of Andhra. 1323, he leaves Devagiri at the head of, of 63,000 mounted archers and marched southeast, first stopping in the old Chalukya capital of Kalyana, where he endowed a congregational mosque. Then he crossed the frontier into Kakatiya territory. The first, uh, and the first Kakatiya fort he encountered there was Bidar, uh, which he easily seized. But then he moves on to Bodan. Uh, the site, which is right there on the Kakatiya border, in the front, within Kakatiya territory, uh, the site of one of the most extraordinary mosques, I believe, in all of India. This structure, of course, had not always been a mosque. Locally known as the Deva Masjid, uh, it was originally a temple built uh, in the late 12th or 13th century in Kakatiya style. When the temple was converted into a mosque, the walls and superstructure were removed from the shrine itself, and a prayer hall of 45 bays was constructed in its place. That's toward the back there. This prayer hall was of open pillared construction along its northeast and south sides, but was closed off on the west side, the direction of the Qibla, by a solid wall. A mihrab niche was built in the middle of a Qibla wall, you see it here, and a stone pulpit, or minbar, which you can't see from this angle, was placed immediately to its north. In striking contrast to the treatment of the sanctum, the temple's pillared hall, or mandapa, 
was carefully preserved in almost its original form, now recast as a majestic entry pavilion into the adjoining prayer hall. The only changes were that figural sculptures on the four pillars uh, in the central bay were chiseled off, you can see them here, and nine semi-spheroid domes made of brick and mortar replaced the rotated squares type of flat ceiling that had originally covered the temple's three porches and central mandapa. As seen from afar, these domes are the structure's most arresting feature. The building's redefinition evidently required some readily visible feature that the patron took to be emblematic of its new Islamic purpose. The profusion of domes that seem to almost sprout from the top of the monument's eastern side dramatically contrasts with most mosques built in the Deccan, uh, or for that matter anywhere in India, uh, uh, in the Khalji and Tughluq periods, uh, which were either flat-roofed throughout uh, or possessed only a single iconic dome uh, above the mihrab. How then might one explain this extraordinary structure? Who changed it into a mosque and why? Of course, one could expect Ullah Khan himself, since the prince had already patronized a congregational mosque in nearby Kalyana just a few weeks earlier uh, during this very campaign. But no inscription or chronicle mentions Ullah Khan's building activities in Bodan. There are to be sure, fragments of two stone inscriptions lying in the courtyard in front of the site, both of them patronized by Ullah Khan after he had become Sultan several years later. But neither inscription records the dedication of a mosque. In fact, from a strictly architectural standpoint, it's difficult to associate this structure with Tughluq patronage at all. Not only does its mihrab arch lack the pointed horseshoe profile that is so characteristic of Tughluq architecture, but its makeshift composition as a whole is utterly anomalous when placed beside any Tughluq mosque in India. On the other hand, a nearly contemporary chronicler, Isami, mentioned the Tughluq's armies passing through Bodhan during its 1323 invasion of Andhra. And according to him, when Ulog Khan besieged the fort, the garrison became so panicked that the chief voluntarily came out sued for amnesty, and offered all his land and wealth. After he was given amnesty, he converted to Islam, not alone, but with all the members of his family and his, all of his dependents. This suggests the possibility that Bodan's chief himself, having negotiated an amnesty with Ulu Khan and having converted to Islam, supervised the building's reconfiguration. After all, as Bodan's principal political figure, he would likely have been the temple's chief patron, and hence in a position to authorize the project. And as a new convert to Islam, he would have had a motive to do so, for at the time there would have been no mosques in the town. From Bodan, Ulu Khan now continues on to Warangal, following his march, which he besieged for the second time, and with his enormous cavalry and sophisticated siege equipment, finally conquered. The Tughluq prince now faced the challenging task of how to integrate the former Kakatiya realm into the Delhi Sultanate's sovereign territory. Standing before the great temple to Swayambhu Shiva in the heart of Warangal citadel, the Tughluq prince would immediately have understood the political significance of this monument, which communicated architecturally 
that the icon of the god was also the emblem of the state and the source of its authority. Determined to efface every remaining vestige of Kakatiya authority, he set about dismantling the entire edifice. Every structure standing within the complex was pulled down to its foundations, sparing only the four ritual gateways, or toranas, that stood at the four cardinal directions just beyond the sacred precinct. Most importantly, he had the Swaimbushiva Linga uprooted from its pedestal and broken in two, rendering it incapable of serving as a vehicle for the deity's manifestation. With the symbolic fount of Kakatiya authority uprooted, it still remained for the conquerors to establish their own authority as the city's new rulers. So, following the Halji's example at Devagiri, Ulu Khan constructed a great congregational mosque on the former site of Swayambushiva's temple, which we're looking at. The only several pillars and, and uh, beams remain of it. We're looking from the east toward the west. Although precious little of this mosque remains today, when intact, it consisted of a covered prayer hall to the west that was most likely preceded by an enclosed courtyard to the east. And just north of the main domed mihrab uh, bay was a stone mimbar, uh, which, part of which you see here, from which the Friday sermon address would have been delivered. But Ulu Khan carefully retained those four spectacular toranas that had framed and centered the old Swayambushiva temple. But now they served as monumental markers indicating preferred points of entry into this entirely radically newly defined plaza. He also built a royal audience hall known today as the Hushma Hall, it's a modern name, situated about 175 yards west of the westernmost Torana. Unlike the mosque, this building is still in very good shape. In fact, among the best-preserved Tughlaq audience halls in all of India, being in far better shape than its likely prototype, the Hall of Public Audience uh, in Tughlaqabad, Delhi, which Ulu Khan's father, Sultan Yazuddin, completed about the same time that his son took Warangal. Everything about this structure connects it conceptually to imperial Tughlaqabad. The pronounced batter of its heavy walls, uh, its northern orientation, and especially its six transverse arches in the interior with their characteristic horseshoe profile. Like Devagiri's Halji Mosque and the nearby mosque of the, uh, of the, uh, at the, uh, on the Swambu Shiva Temple site, this structure shows how the metropolitan style of contemporary Delhi was transplanted in nearly pure form in the new provincial outpost of Warangal. <coughs> So here, of course, is Tughlaqabad Delhi, uh, and uh, of course the tomb of Ghazadeen uh, in great shape. And the door to the, the tomb of Ghazadeen you see on the right, of course, has that characteristic uh, horseshoe-designed arch, which we see replicated uh, down in the so-called Khushmahal in Warangal. In short, the elaborate measures that Ulu Khan took in redesigning Warangal's central plaza suggest his grasp of the site's importance for the defeated Kakatiyas, as well as his own determination to make the place a colonial outpost of a distant imperial order. After appointing officers to govern the eastern Deccan in Warangal, Ulu Khan now left Warangal for his long trip back to Delhi. But instead of retracing his steps via Devagiri, the way he came, 
he turned eastward toward the Andhra coast on a route that took him through Orissa, that would take him through Orissa. It seems also to have taken him into the rich Godavari Delta, where one of his appointees, an officer named Salar Ulvi, commissioned the construction of a mosque in the town of Rajamundi uh, in 1324. The prayer hall of this mosque consists of 21 bays divided by 12 starkly plain Chitrakanda columns that appear to have been newly fashioned for this building by local masons. The structure is entered through a formal gateway that leads from the street into the mosque's enclosed courtyard beyond. A Tughluk-style pointed arch with horseshoe profile frames the outer doorway of the gateway, beyond which a corridor, you see it here, takes one into a second arched opening, which in turn leads to the courtyard. This is the courtyard. Built into the second arched opening, however, is the mosque's most extraordinary feature, an elaborately carved doorway taken from the sanctum of a temple. On the basis of its style, this finely carved doorway appears to date to the 12th or 13th century, having originally been patronized by local feudatories of the Cacatillas. By placing the entranceway to a temple's most sacred space in the entrance of the mosque, the building's patron seems to have appealed not only to a locally familiar aesthetic, but to the deeper purpose of a temple sanctum's doorway, namely its function of demarcating a zone of purity within. But unlike a sanctum doorway, which is intended to protect the deity within and to restrict access to the sacred zone, the reused doorway in the mosque functions to invite all worshippers inside. And in this respect, the doorway serves as a, as a bridge connecting a pre-conquest world with a new Tughluk-sponsored world in a manner not unlike the mihrab of, of Bijapur's Kanimuddin Mosque, uh, or indeed the four Kakatiya Toranas, uh, that framed Warnagal's redesigned plaza. Having left Sawar Ulwi to govern the Godavari Delta from Rajamundri, Ulul Khan now continues on his return trip to Delhi. Reaching the imperial capital in 1324, the victorious prince was greeted with a hero's welcome. But then, after arranging for his father to suffer a fatal accident, <laughs> pretty clear that's what happened. In 1325, the prince took the throne as Sultan Mohammed bin Tukluk. The very next year, his government implemented policies respecting an important temple in Kalyana, the former Chaluka capital, that radically departed from policies applied in Warangal. Whereas Uluk Khan, as Tukluk general, had totally demolished the great Shiva temple, just three years later, an inscription was recorded in the name of the same man who is now Sultan to the effect that the Shiva temple at Kalyana was to be repaired, guaranteed imperial protection, and its worship reinstated. Now I'm going to return to this seeming contradictory behavior in a moment, but first let's review the facts. We know that as prince, Ulu Khan had patronized a congregational mosque in Kalyana while marching from Devagiri. Uh, to Warangal. But then in 1326, just three years later, and one year after Ulu Khan becomes uh, the ruler of Delhi, a public charter was issued in Kalyana in the name of this new sultan. It's an extraordinary record in many respects. First, 
it was drafted by a certain Vijaditya, not in Persian, the power language of the Delhi Sultanate and of the Persian cosmopolis, but in Sanskrit, the language of that other cultural domain, the Sanskrit cosmopolis. It was also written in Nagari script and dated in the Shaka, not the Islamic calendar, corresponding to November 10, 1326. Appearing at the top of the stone slab that bears the inscription is an image of the sun and crescent moon, the same iconographic program that Chaluka inscriptions would have borne. And finally, Sultan Muhammad bin Tughluq was given the Sanskrit title Maharaja Diraja Suratrana, Great King of Kings and Sultan, while the governor of the Deccan, Ghamadin Kutluk, was called Mahapradhana, Great Minister. Both of these, except Suratrana, of course, being terms that pre-Turkic dynasties of the Deccan would have used in reference to their own public officials. The inscription itself refers to the outbreak of a serious anti-Tugluk rebellion led by the Sultan's own cousin, Bahauddin Gurshasp, who had earlier been put in charge of the frontier fort of Sagar, located 100 miles south of Kalyana, near the Krishna River. At the time of the rebellion, which must have broken out not long before the date of this record, the Tugluk governor in charge of Kalyana, Khwaja Ahmed, together with his Hindu secretary, Jandamala, left the city in order to consult with other government officials, presumably about how to deal with this uprising. But in their absence, unidentified unruly elements disrupted worship in Kalyana's Shaiva temple of Madhukeshvara and, and, and damaged the Shivalinga. Some devotees of the deity planned to repair the image and for this purpose approached the temple trustees. When Khwaja Ahmed returns to Kalyana, the official in charge of managing the temple, one Thakaramala, appealed to him as the governor of the region to restore the structure and to reinstate, reinstate the deity's image. After first consulting Jandamala, his secretary, Khwaja Ahmed approved the request, reasoning that for the temple's petitioners, worship in the temple was a religious duty. Accordingly, the temple's Shivalinga was repaired and reinstalled according to the prescribed rites for such procedures, including the nocturnal uh, chanting of mantras. What stands out most clearly in this episode is the extent to which the Tughluq government had enmeshed itself in the religious and political affairs of Kalyana's local society, as well as the extent to which that society had assimilated this Maharaja Dhiraja Suratrana in distant Delhi into their own conceptual world. Sandwiched between Muhammad bin Tughluq in Delhi and the devotees, trustees, and manager of the Madhukeshvara temple was Khwaja Ahmed, the local governor who had been charged with managing and sustaining the status quo in matters of local religious institutions. The Tughluq government's clear priority respecting this recent addition to its realm was to secure and to maintain an institutional continuity with the past. This is conveyed as much in the inscription's media, its language, script, honorific titles, and iconography, as it is in its message. So looking back over the extraordinary career of Muhammad bin Tughluq, first as prince, then as sultan, one is struck by his apparently contradictory behavior respecting the built environment of territory he had conquered and ruled. As prince, as we've seen, he had demolished the great Shiva temple in Warangal, whereas only several years later as sultan, he preserved and protected another Shiva temple 
in Kalyana. How can we explain what might seem a stunning reversal in official policy? One is tempted to explain his behavior in terms of the Sultan's famously bipolar personality. <laughs> I mean, even in his own day, as Ibn Battuta reminds us, uh, stories of his wild vacillations from uh, between uh, horrific cruelty and lavish generosity uh, were legend. But regarding Hindu temples, his policies were actually consistent. Temples closely associated with enemy kings whose territory lay in the path of his advancing army were liable to be destroyed and their salvaged materials reused, as occurred at Warangal, or as earlier occurred in Devagiri under the orders of Khalji administrators. But by 1326, Kalyana had long since ceased being capital of an enemy king. When the Chalukya Empire broke up toward the end of the 12th century, the city's status fell from imperial capital to a distant outpost on the Yadava frontier, with the Kakatiyas to the east and the Hoysalas to the south. Kalyana and his temples played no role in underwriting the legitimacy of the Yadava state in the way, for instance, that Warangal and its Swainbu Shiva temple had done for the Kakatiya state. The temple thus posed no threat to the stability of the new regime. To the contrary, since supporting local temples was what local populations expected legitimate rulers to do, the sultan had a natural incentive to follow suit. But there was yet another reason that Mohammed bin Tughlaq patronized Kalyana's Shiva temple. In a pattern found throughout the history of Indo-Muslim polities, once enemy territory had been annexed to the state, Immovable property already on that territory was regarded as state property and hence deserving of state protection and support. Accordingly, imperial officers were obliged to have Kalyana's Shiva temple repaired when it was damaged on their watch. In the Sultan's view, any territory newly annexed to the Sultanate automatically became subject to Islamic law, under which non-Muslims and their property enjoyed protected status. By this reasoning, if non-Muslims should wish to build a new temple on land after it had been annexed, permission would be granted so long as they paid the poll tax required of all Muslims, as specified in Islamic law. Based on his correspondence with the Emperor of China, we know that the Sultan, who was very well versed in Islamic theology and jurisprudence, especially jurisprudence, held precisely this view. In 1342, when the Chinese emperor petitioned the Delhi court to have a temple built somewhere in Tughluq, India, Muhammad bin Tughluq replied that permission would be granted so long as the petitioner paid the poll tax, the jizya. So it follows that the Hindus of Kalyana, as tax-paying subjects of the Delhi Sultanate, were allowed not only to repair an existing temple, but also, should they wish, to build a new one. In the case of Kalyana, if the case of Kalyana provides us with a text but no physical evidence of the monument, in Sholapur, a town in southern Maratha country, we have just the opposite. We have no text but lots of physical evidence. Just inside the fort's northern wall, this is the main entry to the citadel, just inside the wall is a small dilapidated temple of the Yadava period, which is to say 12th or 13th century. We see it here from one angle, another angle here. And about 100 feet to the south of this ruined temple uh, is a 36-bay mosque. There is no question that the mosque was assembled from columns and dressed masonry slabs 
taken in part from the temple. In morphology, style, material, and dimensions, the shorter columns of the mosque exactly match those used in the temple. So here we have the interior of the temple, and here we have the remains of the mosque, and here we can compare on the left the temple, I'm sorry, the mosque, on the right the temple. Uh, Phil, and I, Phil Wider and I went there and particularly measured all these, these uh, counted up exactly how many there could have been and, and how many were missing from the original temple, and there's no doubt about it. On stylistic grounds, the mosque can be dated to the early 14th century, when it would have been patronized by either the Hilgis or the Tugluks. Most notably, we see the pointed horseshoe profile of the central mihrab arch, suggesting that the temple was likely dissembled and the mosque built during one of the Sultanate's early expeditions into the interior Deccan. If a Hindu chief had resisted the expansion of state power, any temple patronized by that chief would have been liable for desecration, or in the present case, uh, demolition, since it would have been perceived as an architectural manifestation of that chief's authority. Now, there are several possibilities for when this could have taken place. In 1313, Malak Kafur, after executing the Yadava king of uh, Devagiri, is reported to have laid waste the Maratha country as far south as Mudgal, some hundred miles beyond Sholapur. In 1318, Sultan Qutbuddin Mubarak established uh, and garrisoned forts in Sagar, Gulbarga, and other centers of the region, Gulbarga being only 60 miles east of Sholapur. And in 1347, just as the Bamini state was being consolidated, the new officer posted in, uh, in Mindagi, only 30 miles east of Sholapur, is reported to have captured three or four forts in the region by way of punishing local chiefs who had resisted state power. So what do we make of all this, and how do we put it in some larger uh, conceptual framework, which is what I'd like to conclude this talk by trying to do. In general, I want to say, and this applies not just to India, but I think anywhere, whenever territory is acquired by a new sovereign authority, the possible outcomes respecting the fate of that territory's built landscape are almost everywhere the same. Do the victors intervene in that landscape or not? And if they do intervene, in what manner do they do so? How, in other words, do they respond to the built environment that they've acquired? The annexation of the Deccan Plateau by the Delhi Sultans confronted commanders, governors, and sovereigns with precisely these questions. And we, as later historians, might further ask, what factors in a given situation might have shaped their response. The data, the data I've just presented suggests, I think, a spectrum of architectural outcomes of military conquest, which can be distinguished, each outcome I think can be distinguished according to the extent to which a conquering power intervened in the existing built landscape. In this case, whose most, most prominent feature, of course, uh, was Hindu temples. So at one end of the spectrum, we see uh, non-intervention, by far the most common response. I mean, we see this everywhere. Uh, as, for example, uh, to shift context just a little bit, uh, as when the Nazis <laughs> took possession of the closest French analog to an iconic temple, the Eiffel Tower. In the Deccan, since most temples and their patrons were politically irrelevant, 
They posed no threat to the stability of new regimes, which consequently simply ignored them. It was only those temples patronized by powerful chiefs, and especially those that underpinned the authority of ruling regimes powerful states, that were problematic. But even such temples would be ignored if their patron rulers no longer held effective power. Like a light bulb, whose power cord has been cut, such temples had lost their charge. Politically, they were dead. This would explain why the Delhi Sultans and their successors ignored a spectacular monument, for example, such as the Thousand Pillar Hall in Hanumakonda, just outside of Warrigal. Although this had been the Kakatiya dynasty's principal temple uh, in the 12th century, it no longer was when the armies of Delhi first reached the area in 1309. The charge had gone out. The same is true for temples associated with imperial Chalukyas, who, of course, had been long defunct by the early 14th century. And we have uh, uh, lots of temples, spectacular temples, right in the middle of the Deccan Plateau, such as the, the, uh, the, the Jalsingi Temple, uh, the uh, temple here at Narayanpur, uh, <clears throat> which is, again, just a few miles from, uh, from, from Bidar, which was the capital of the Bahmani Sultans. I mean, it's not as if they had to go out of their way to find something to bash. The least intrusive form of active intervention in a built environment, moving along our spectrum here, would be continued patronage. That is, a state's endorsement of the status quo ante by continuing to support a pre-conquest institution. This, too, happens everywhere. In southern Andhra, for example, the immensely popular shrine complex dedicated to Venkateshvara at Tirupati was patronized by many dynasties, the Pallavas, Vijayanagara, the Marathas, Mysore, the East India Company, and now, of course, the state of Andhra Pradesh. In the history of the Sultanate's expansion into the Deccan, the Shiva Temple of Kalyana also provides uh, a dramatic example of this. Acting through his appointed governor of the city, Sultan Mahabad bin Tughluq, 1326, directly intervened to restore a temple to regular worship by overseeing physical repairs to it. But in truth, he was doing far more than just repairing a temple. He was actually underwriting the entire social order in which the temple's institutional structures, devotees, its trustees, the manager, everyone, had traditionally functioned. In the case of this temple, we hear of no chieftain whose authority depended upon the temple's well-being. Instead, governing authorities acted in such a manner that the sultan himself, having assumed proprietary rights over the institution, adopted the role of the temple's de facto, if not de jure, patron. A still greater degree of intervention is seen when new structures are built in imitation of structures built in radically different contexts, always with a view to collapsing the spatial or temporal distance separating them. This happens again all, all the time, as when Americans imagine themselves inhabiting the Athens of Pericles, or the eternal world of ancient Egypt. This is a no-brainer. We've all seen this. Similarly, when the Khaljis built the great mosque of Devagiri, uh, they were consciously injecting into the colonial periphery the aesthetic of the imperial metropolitan center. On the other hand, when the Tughluqs build a mosque in the newly colonized Godavari Delta, 
they adopt precisely the opposite strategy. Though themselves outsiders to this region, they imitated the local style when they built these new columns for the mosque of Rajamandri. Recent years have seen uh, a huge growth in studies on the use and the meaning of recycled structural elements, which many people still call spolia. I don't like that word. This literature has appeared not only in art history in general, but in South Asian studies in particular. But I think we first need to distinguish between those elements that are merely put to practical use and those that are put to more meaningful, iconic use. The former, or functional reuse, I would call it, would include any locally available architectural members, including those salvaged from dilapidated or abandoned buildings that were reused for strictly utilitarian purposes. And I'm talking really basic things here. Holding up a ceiling beam uh, or framing a doorway. We see this kind of reuse at many sites, such as, for example, in the Great Way, in the Gateway uh, to the Citadel at Sagar. Sagar is down here in the central uh, southern plateau, which is a very important Turkic fort dating back to the Tughluq period. Just inside this gateway, and here you see it, it was built by Firuz, uh, Sultan Firuz Bahmani in 1407. Uh, just inside this, uh, this gateway, you have uh, interior doorways here flanked with reused door jams that had originally belonged to some kind of pre-Turkic structure. But the presence of plaster over these recycled jams, now partially peeled away, indicates that they were never really intended to be seen at all, but they were used simply for their structural functionality alone. Such a usage, this kind of functional, you know, holding up the, the, the ceiling beam or whatever, I think contrasts very dramatically uh, with uh, another kind of, uh, of, of usage, um, which is to say meaningful icons that were very in much intended to be seen, uh, iconic reuse. But such iconic reuse could serve opposing purposes, sometimes intended to emphasize continuity with the past, at other times to proclaim a break with the past. In fact, most instances of iconic reuse appear to do so uh, both of these simultaneously. After 1789, buildings in colonial Boston certainly connected the new American regime to its colonial past. Indeed, they are icons of that past. But the new uses to which they were put broke radically with that past. In the same way, the builders of the Karimuddin Mosque in Bijapur recycled columns from temple mandapas to carry the roof of their mosque's prayer hall. Now, there is admittedly a disjunction here, since the reused columns were obviously no longer in the structures for which they had been made. But at the same time, other factors served to emphasize the commensurability between mosque and temple such as the builder's decision to place the most ornate columns along the mosque's mihrab axis, much as they would have done uh, or been in the central bay of a mandapa. Or the attention, the close attention they paid to connect those diamond motifs uh, connecting the two sections of the mihrab itself. Now, in the case of this mosque, continuity appears to take the upper hand. 
But there are other cases where the primary message of reuse seems to have been one of rupture. Again, nothing unique to India about this. Uh, Recall the Fourth Crusade of 1204, when West European Catholics plundered Byzantine Constantinople uh, and took back to Venice the bronze horses that had adorned the old Hippodrome. And during the Reformation, Dutch Protestants openly advertised the break with their Catholic past. Very, very (laughs) clear, iconic uh, rupture here. The same thing, of course, happened in India. Uh, as in the 11th century, when the Cholas plundered the Chalukyas of Kalyana. On one occasion, uh, they not only took back temple guardians, but boasted of having burned the Chalukya capital. And of course, the Cholas were not the only ones to use Chalukyan sculpture uh, in this manner. In the 15th century, uh, when the Bahmani regime rebuilt the bastions of the old fort of Kalyana, hundreds of temple sculptures were taken from nearby Chalukya temples and recycled in the bastion's outer walls. Uh, There may have been an element of continuity here, to be sure, since these icons very likely were intended to repel danger, just as they would would have done on the walls of a temple. Yet the message of rupture, I think, is paramount here. Not only were these images uh, exposed to artillery fire, but some of them were purposely positioned sideways, you see here, or even sideways, upside down, and right side up. A still more intrusive form of engagement is redefinition. Here, the structural integrity of a monument was maintained, but its function was transformed by adding and or removing ritually critical components. The Mosque of Cordoba became a church, and Istanbul's Hagia Sophia became a mosque when new ruling authorities made strategic alterations to these monuments. The same can be said for the devil, so-called Deva Masjid in Bodhan, where the ritually critical mihrab replaced the sanctum of a Kakatiya temple. What is exceptional about this structure, though, is that its redefinition appears to have been accomplished not by the governing Tughluqs, but by a local chief, himself a convert to Islam. Especially noteworthy is the addition of these semi-spheroid domes on its eastern side, replacing the old rotated squares roof system of the former temple. Domes, of course, are ritually irrelevant for a mosque. You just don't need them. Indeed, the sultans of Delhi in the 13th, 14th century built many mosques with low, corbelled roofs rather than the sort of high brick-and-mortar domes that you see here. But since the structure appears to have been redefined by a local convert eager to make an unambiguous statement as to the former temple's new status, he seems to have used these domes as iconic features declaring the building's new Islamic identity. The most drastic drastic intervention in a built environment was dismantling, after which a structure's disassembled elements were often recycled for constructing something new. Now this too is nearly universal. Think of what the Spaniards did to the Aztec temples at Tenochtitlan, or what Rome's 10th legion did to Jerusalem's second temple, a model of which you see here. At Warangal, as well, the Tughluqs immediately recognized the political significance of the religious monument that they confronted, as did, of course, the Spaniards in Tenochtitlan, or or Rome's 10th legion in Jerusalem. So, in sum, I've tried to suggest here 
something of the wide range of different ways that politics and architecture uh, interacted in the medieval Deccan. But also, I think, the need that, to move beyond the crude categories of analysis that have prevailed thus far, according to which temples are either destroyed or they are not. Indeed, my own previous work, I think, has been stuck in, uh, was struck, stuck in precisely that kind of crude binary. And at Warrigal, at least, the story did not end with the, when the fort was seized by the Tughluqs. Or even, for that matter, several decades later, when local chieftains reconquered the fort and briefly launched a sort of neo-Kakatiya sovereignty. Indeed, the story continues down to the present. When the Archaeological Survey of India has tastefully, but very destructively, rearranged the ruined fragments of the great Kakatiya temple, you see them here, which for more than seven centuries had been lying about the site undisturbed. In this way, the ASI has forever destroyed our ability to reconstruct the layout of the original temple. Thank you, ASI. But they have also willy-nilly introduced yet another mode by which a new ruling power interacts with a built environment, or in this case, with the remains of a built environment. Today's Department of Archaeology has zealously embarked on a mission aimed not at preserving the past, but at attracting tourists, which explains, I think, the manicured, manicured lawns and the artful, tasteful rearrangement of Kakatiya stones. Nor is Warangal Fort meant for the enjoyment of adults only. <laughs> as I ponder uh, the architecture of the Deccan, as I'm trying to think through conceptually you know, the many ways that monuments and power are mutually related, it is clear that I have not exhausted all of the possibilities. Uh, I should probably add one more category to my typology, and here you have a very brief summary of this whole uh, talk this afternoon. I, I think I need to add at least one more category to this typology of how new regimes interact with monuments belonging to earlier regimes. And that, of course, would be commodification, a category that had to await our own era of mass consumerism. For the Deccan now inhabits a global capitalist space in which something as majestic as a torna, and there you see it in the background with a Hansa, you know, on its left side, uh, of this spectacular former Kakatiya site can now serve as simply a backdrop for a children's park, or even as an icon for marketing ice cream cones, uh, or, or, uh, or schools, or fashionable clothing. Uh, to conclude then, I hope that I've made my point that, that, that any typology uh, of architectural responses to the regimes uh, must move beyond a simple binary destruction or no destruction, uh, but consider a, a wider range of possibilities. Thank you very much. <laughs>